Paul taught last week, or we taught from Paul's writings last week. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, we talked about uh, gender roles within the church and within the family and God's purpose. Biblical headship is what we will call it. And if you want to listen to that, it's online. And then in the second half of chapter 11, he cleared up some confusion concerning the, the practice of taking communion each week or, or however often we do it as a church. And there is no set guideline as to how often to do communion, but we do it monthly. Typically, we do it the first Sunday of the month. Now, I switched it up a little bit last week because we were studying communion. I thought, what good is learning something unless you can put it to practice right then? And so we kind of broke our tradition, if you want to call it that, and we took it last Sunday in order to put to practice what we had just studied from Paul's writings. So this week, we find ourselves in 1 Corinthians 12. Paul is continuing to answer questions concerning, you know, basically what's going on with some of these things that are going on in their church. Paul explained in the first chapter of 1 Corinthians that this church in Corinth had all the spiritual gifts. And he doesn't list them out. He just says, you guys lack and no good gift that God has given you. And these gifts were apparently being exercised in the church. And so he wasn't clearing up confusion about what those gifts were. But what we're going to see in this chapter today is he's going to say how they are to be used in the church because there were some that were kind of holding out one gift over another. And because the other people didn't have the gift that they had, they started to kind of measure each other and compete with one another. And that was causing problems. It was causing rifts between certain groups that were in the church. And so Paul's trying to restore unity by explaining that there is a diversity of gifts that God gives to those who follow him and are his children, but they're not meant to tear one another down. They're not meant to cause division in the church. They're actually meant for the building up of each individual that comprises the church. They're meant to to actually cause there to be more unity, not less. And so I want to first and foremost start by reading from the chapter, and then we'll kind of get into that. So in chapter 12, verse 1, he starts by saying, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. He doesn't want us to be ignorant. And we think of that word as a slander word. You know, you might hear somebody go, Well, so-and-so, he's ignorant. You know, and they're just saying... Basically, he's a fool. But the word ignorant actually means to be unaware of, means to not know. So he doesn't want us to not know about spiritual gifts and what they're for. And so he's going to spend this chapter talking about the purpose of spiritual gifts. But while he's telling us that, he says, I don't want you to be ignorant of these things. And he said this in two other spots in his writings, Paul has. In uh, Romans chapter 11, verse 25, he says, I don't want you to be ignorant concerning God's plan for the nation of Israel. And then in this chapter, he says, I don't want you to be ignorant concerning spiritual gifts. And then there in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he says, I don't want you to be unaware or ignorant of the second coming of Jesus Christ and the eternal state that he's going to set up. And so think about those three topics, God's plan for Israel spiritual gifts, and the second coming of Jesus Christ. The people in the Corinthian church, they were ignorant of these things. And so Paul wrote about them. But then think about this. Today, some of the biggest debates and disputes and divisions that are caused in the church are over these three doctrines. 
And so just as much as they needed them in the day of Corinth and in the day of the Thessalonian church and in the, in the day when Paul wrote to the Romans, we need them now. God does not want us to be ignorant of these three things because they are important teachings. And so he's given us to these things in the writings of Paul in order that we would not be ignorant and that the result of that wouldn't be divisions and strife and problems in the church, but that we would all be unified and understand that God's word does actually teach on these things. And so in verse two, after he said, I don't want you to be ignorant of these things, he says, you know that you were Gentiles carried away to these dumb idols. However, you were led. A dumb idol means to be something that's mute, can't speak. And they were coming from a culture where they worshiped a statue, something that couldn't talk, it couldn't hear, it couldn't provide for you, it couldn't protect you, it couldn't do anything. It was just a piece of wood overlaid with gold or some precious metal that people have decided, hey, we're going to worship this. And so he's saying, you've been deceived in the past, you've been unaware of things in the past, and it's caused all kinds of problems in your life. So I don't want you to be ignorant concerning the, the Spirit. I don't want you to be ignorant concerning the gifts of the Spirit. I don't want you to be unaware that God wants to communicate with you. He wants to communicate with others through you. And one of the ways he does this is through his gifts. And so in verse 3, we have here, he says, Therefore, in light of what I've just said, because I don't want you to be ignorant, therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Holy Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed. And no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So here's the difference between a person who has been filled with the Holy Spirit and a person that does not have the Holy Spirit. Now, we know from God's word and from just knowing what God teaches is that when we become saved, when we decide to follow Jesus, he gives us the promise of the Father. Jesus said, I'm going to send you the promise of the Father. And that promise was the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, I can't be with you at wherever you go in my current state. I'm one man. He wasn't omnipresent. He couldn't be in one, more than one place at one time. So when he died, he, res he came up, back up from the dead, and then he went to the Father. But before he did, he said, it's good that I leave you, because when I leave, I'm going to send you the Comforter, and he's going to be with you wherever you go. Not just one person, but all believers. So the Holy Spirit was given to reside in us so that you and I could be filled with the power of God and live to do the will of God. Because apart from God empowering us to do what he's given us to do as believers, we can do nothing. John chapter 15 says, if you don't abide in me, if you don't trust in me, if you're not plugged into who I am and filled with the power that empowered Jesus, then you can't do anything for me. You can only try and fail. He said, but I'm going to give you the one that's going to give you the power to live this life that I've called you to. You cannot please God on your own. And so in verse 3, he says there, no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed. The word there is anathema, or where we get our word damned. In other words, eternally separated, not of God. He says, no one speaking by the Spirit of God can say that Jesus is not God. No one can do that. If you have the Spirit of God in you, you will know that Jesus is the Lord, and you will, that's what will come off of your lips. 
And so he's saying, if someone comes among you and says, thus saith the Lord, and they start to point you to other gods and tell you to worship them, they're not of God. If someone comes along and and tries to deceive you, they're not going to do it by saying Jesus isn't God. What they're going to do is they're going to say, you know, Jesus is a good teacher, but he's not really God. And you'll see them come up to your doorstep. They'll be riding bicycles, wearing ties and suits. And they're going to come along with this little pamphlet that's going to tell you how to become a Jehovah's Witness or how to become a Mormon. And, and they're very faithful to show up at our doorsteps. But if you start questioning them concerning what they think about Jesus, you'll know whether or not they're of our God. Because all you got to do is say, do you believe that Jesus is God? And they'll sidestep it. They'll walk all around it. But that is the one thing that distinguishes us different from any other religion. Jesus is God, and anybody that says that he's not is not filled with the Holy Spirit. They're not a believer. Reject what they teach. It's just as simple as that. You don't have to know all of their doctrine. You don't have to read all their books. Don't do any of that. You can if you want, but you need to know that the main issue that's different between Christianity and Jehovah's Witness, Christianity and Mormons is they believe and they look very close. They call themselves the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. There's extra revelation. But their extra revelation does not agree with the Bible. It says that Jesus was the Son of God, but he was really just a human or that he was just a spirit. And we won't get into all that today. But that's the main purpose. He's saying anybody that speaks by the Spirit of God who says they have spiritual gifts and they want to speak into your life, If they don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God, reject it. It's false. Anything that comes after that, you don't have to even listen to. Put them away. Tell them to go. So in verse 4, he says this. He says, there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. So in verse 4 through 6, he's making this main one point, that the spiritual gifts that God gives each one of us, number one, they are gifts of the Holy Spirit. And there is one Holy Spirit. He doesn't disagree with himself. So if he gives me the spirit of teaching and he gives someone else the spirit of discernment, we will agree with one another. We'll have unity amongst one another, even though... We have differing gifts. And so there's a diversity of gifts, but they're the same spirit. They have the same source. That's where they came from. There are differing ministries, or the word can be services. And this means kind of like um, a ministry can be like a particular um, position in the church. It can be a particular gifting of someone that leads in a certain ministry. It could be someone that has a ministry of uh, helps or Uh, administration, whatever it might be to be a part of the the local body of the church. He says there are different activities. Uh, Activities are the way that God displays or manifests, pours out his miraculous power in different ways. An activity can be a miracle, it can be a healing, but all of these things are stuff that God gives us. So the question becomes, okay, he says ministries, he says gifts, and he says activities. Well, the gifts are all from the Lord, and those gifts can be one of two things. They can be activities, or they can be ministries. Stay with me. However, some gifts are ministries, and some gifts are activities. 
What I mean by that is my gift is the gift of teaching. God uses that in the church, particularly for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. Ministry doesn't have to be done within the four walls. The ministries of God, many times, most of the time, should be outside of the walls. That's how God uses us. Your job, wherever you work, your family, your position in your family, those are all ministries. And God gives us the gifts that we need to perform those ministries. But there are also activities. And these activities can be healings, they can be miracles, they're they're things that happen throughout when God gives us the ability to do it. And we'll get more into that. But in in verse 7, he continues on, he says this, But the manifestation or the revealing of the Spirit is given to each one for who? He says, for the profit of all. Everyone gets to benefit in the body of Christ by your gift. And you all have gifts. Some of you think that it's not really a gift, but it is. You know, some people have the gift of teaching. Some people have the gift of praying. Some people have the gift of just, you know, sitting in their their quiet closet, like the movie War Room that came out recently. If you guys have seen that, there was an older lady. She was probably in her 60s or 70s. And her gift was discipling one-on-one and praying for people. She would go to her prayer closet. She had lists all over it. She was very tactical about how she prayed. It looked like one of those rooms. You guys ever see the war movies? The old ones, where they'd have the room and all the generals are walking around the table and they're pushing the little pawns around on the table. And they have a battle plan. And they're running the battle off-site while the battle's going on on-site. And one of the things that we can do is we can pray for situations. Even if we're not there, God can minister And we get to be a part of sending that long-range artillery. Prayer. And so there are different ways that God gives us gifts. And we tend to measure one gift is more important than the other. We think, well, the guy teaching, he's more important than the lady that goes to work every week and prays for her co-workers and speaks to them about her relationship with the Lord. But all of those gifts are needed in order to build up the body of Christ and share the love of God in our communities. So we had said there, the revealing of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. The gifts of the Spirit are not for me. If I have a gift, it's not for me. It's for others, others first. And then he says in verse 8, For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge through the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healings by the same Spirit, to another, the working of miracles, to another, prophecy, to another, discernment of spirits, discerning of spirits, and to another, different kinds of tongues, to another, the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. Now, a note on the gifts of the Spirit. Here's what sets apart what we're doing here from other denominations not saying that they're wrong completely. Their view of gifts can be wrong. And so, biblically speaking, what we believe is that, well, I'll give you the others first. There are some denominations that are very, what we would call, conservative. And they believe in the teaching of the Word of God, just like we do. 
They believe that the word of God is the final word from God and it's what should guide everything that we do in our lives. And they're right. But they also believe that the gifts of the Spirit are not for today in the church. This is not something that means that they're unsaved. It just means that they believe the gifts of the Spirit were over in the days of the apostles. Once the apostles died out, we no longer need the gifts. And then there are the charismatic churches that believe in the gifts of the Spirit in the way that they, they, they focus on that so much, but there's not a whole lot of their experience guided by the Word of God. They kind of they focus in on the gifts so much that they never spend any time letting the Word of God guide their experience with the gifts of the Spirit. Does that make sense? And so one extreme is it's kind of uh, chaotic. There's no order to it. And the other is there's so much order that there's not an opening, a willingness to let God speak through the gifts of the Spirit because they believe that they're over. What we believe is both. We believe in the gifts of the Spirit that they're still for today, that God uses them amidst us to minister to one another, to, to lead people to the Lord. And we also believe that those experiences, while they can be pretty tremendous, they need to be guided by the Spirit of God through the Word of God. And so God won't contradict himself. So if there's an experience that you're like, I think the Lord was speaking to me, we should always go to the Word of God and go, is this something that contradicts what God would say to me through his Word? And if it does, I would say, it probably wasn't the Spirit, it might have been a bad burrito. You know, not to be you know, ridiculous, but it might have been something that you thought of, but it's not actually God speaking. And so with that balance, we believe that we're able to not only be open to the gifts of the Spirit, but we're also able to make sure that we're worshiping God in spirit and in truth. Does that make sense? If you're completely confused, I do have a book. It's called uh, Charismania, and it, and it talks about basically the extremes that can happen and why there needs to be balance in the Word of God and the way that we live out our lives. And if that's not something you've ever even thought about or you're not even confused about, you don't have the question, then I totally understand because when I first started coming to church, I was ignorant concerning the, the spiritual gifts. And so if that's not something you're worried about at this point, don't worry about it. But as time goes on, you'll read the Word, you'll see people do things, you'll go, why doesn't that happen today? And I would say to you that there are things like that that still do happen today. But <clears throat> I just want to show you a living out of some of these gifts. And one of the ways that they're lived out, Paul doesn't spend a whole lot of time talking about these particular gifts in this passage because they understood the gifts. They knew what they were for, but they didn't know how to use them properly in the context of the church. And so Paul doesn't spend time explaining them. But we need to be careful because... Uh, we might have some confusion ourselves. So what I want to do is take just a minute and talk about the gifts listed out in Acts chapter, excuse me, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 8 through 10. The word of wisdom is when God gives wisdom or knowledge. Wisdom is knowledge applied. You take something you've learned and you put it to practice. The gift of the word of wisdom is when God gives wisdom specifically to a person for a particular situation. For instance, when he says there in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 through 6, he says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding, in all your ways acknowledge God, and he will direct your path. 
Well, sometimes that means he's going to give you wisdom in a situation where you don't have any, whether it's making a decision about your family, financial situation, or someone in your life that needs a little help. God gives wisdom, and it doesn't mean that that person always has the wisdom they need. It means that in particular situations where God wants to speak into a situation, he will pour out wisdom on that person who is seeking it. Then there's the word of knowledge. Now, many times this happens when God gives a person knowledge about a situation that they could no other way know about. For instance, there's been a couple of times over the last year I've had a text message or a phone call from somebody when they would say, hey, I'm praying for this person or I'm praying for this situation. I don't know what's going on, but I've been thinking about them a lot lately. That's the word of knowledge. Now, knowledge doesn't mean you know what to do with it. It just means that now you know about it. And I believe that many times God gives a person supernatural knowledge that they could only know from him because he wants them to pray about it. And so if you're ever driving down the road and you start thinking about somebody or God just lays somebody on your heart, it's not a coincidence. Take that time and pray for that person. You may not know what to pray. Just lift them up to the Lord. If you one of those quick, silent prayers, hey, I'm praying for so-and-so. Lord, please bless them today. I don't know what they're going through, but they need you because that's always true, right? We can pray that in faith. They need you. Who doesn't need the Lord? And sometimes it'll be like um, for a witnessing purpose. In John chapter 4, here's what happened. Jesus was walking with his disciples. He was on the way somewhere, and he told his disciples, I must go through Samaria. Now, if you know anything about the Jews, they did not have any dealings with the Samaritans. And so they wouldn't go through Samaria unless they had to except they always found a way not to. Well, in this case, Jesus said, I got to go to Samaria. And we think, well, it's, it is the quickest way to go. But Jesus knew that there was somebody there he had to talk to. So they arrive in Samaria. They stand by the well. And the Lord says, I'm going to rest here. And the guys are like, hey, we're kind of hungry. We're going to go into town and get a sandwich. We'll be back. Or a bite to eat, whatever they were going to eat. They're going to go to the quickie mart. Get us something quick to eat. And as they were gone, a woman walks up, and she's standing there. And he asks her, he says, hey, would you take your pail there and draw me some water? And she says, well, you don't have a pail. Did you not come for water? And he says, if you knew who I was, you would ask me for water, and I would give you torrents of living water. He's not talking about water. He was talking about everlasting life, abundant life. So while they're standing there talking, they're having a little exchange, he gets to know her a little bit more, and he says, uh, he says to her, he says, uh, where's your husband at? Why isn't he with you? And she says, well, I don't have a husband. He says, you're right, you don't have a husband, because you've been married several times, and the man that you now live with is not your husband. And she goes, you surely are a prophet of God. And so from that point on, she experiences what Jesus knows about her. She goes into the town and she starts telling everybody, come out to the well and talk to this man I talked to who told me everything about myself. He had a supernatural gift of knowledge about this woman. This woman probably had been in shame and hiding from these facts, probably tried to hide it from her neighbors. She knew that Jesus, the only way he could know this about her was that he was God himself. So she said, come meet this guy. He knew everything about me. 
And so sometimes God will give someone supernatural knowledge about another person when they're talking to him to witness to them. And that person the whole time is going, are they been reading my email? Are they stalking me? But really, it's just to show them, hey, God, I, I know the Lord. He talks to me. I want you to know him, too, so we can talk to you. And that's how sometimes God uses people to lead them to salvation is by a supernatural word of knowledge. And so we need to be open to that because many times you want to witness to somebody, but you don't know them. And God says, go talk to them. And he's just going to give you the words you need when you need them. So we need to learn to trust him in that way. And then there's the gift of faith. And many times this gift is manifested in conjunction with other gifts like healings. If the Lord told you while you're walking down Main Street one day, go talk to so-and-so, I want to heal them, and you didn't have faith, you'd go, now I'm good. But if the Lord gives you a word and says, I want you to go talk to that person, I want to heal them, and I want you to tell them that that was me that did it, and then he gives you the faith to do it, you're going to do it. And I know that because in Acts chapter 3, we have a story where this happens with Peter. If you get a chance, turn there with me. Acts chapter 3. It says there in verse 1, Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms from those who entered the temple, who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for alms. He's asking for a handout. He had a bucket there. And fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, look at us. So he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. And then Peter said, silver and gold I don't have. But what I do have, I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. So he took him by the right hand, lifted him up, and immediately his feet and his ankle bones received strength. The word is they were made whole. This is a person that had never walked his entire life. So he didn't have bone structure. He didn't have muscle structure. He was atrophied from birth. Never any time to make any strength. And the Lord made him whole. So he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God, and they knew that it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate. He'd been sitting there his whole life. People walked by him every time they went to the temple. They knew him. They probably had gotten used to seeing him and stopped looking at him. Like, I don't have anything. Leave me alone. I know you're in a bad spot, and I feel guilty about it, but I... All I can give you is money, and then it still doesn't fix your situation. Now, God uses us to, to give alms. That's not a bad thing. But Peter and John were like, look, we, don't, we literally don't have anything to give you, except we have the Lord Jesus, and he can make you whole. And so they lift him up. It says there in verse 11, as the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's greatly solomon's greatly amazed so when peter saw it he responded to the people he says men of israel why do you marvel at this why do you look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness we made this man walk you see these men had been a part of performing this miracle but they immediately they said it was jesus he did it 
Miracles and healings are never to point at the vessel who did them. Unfortunately, on TV ministries and all these other things, men make it about them. Or they try to make a counterfeit. They make a big production about it. But any miracle that comes from God is for the purpose of glorifying God, not the person who did it. So if you ever see a miracle and somebody starts glorifying themselves, that's not the Spirit of God. And you should know from reading the New Testament that the enemies of God can do miracles just the same to deceive. And so what he's saying here is we've got to be careful about who's doing the miracle. But they, he instructs them immediately, and he says, he says, this is something that God has done to glorify himself, to show you that he is present, that he's not dead, that he's not incapable, but that he's living, and he makes people whole. He used this physical miracle to point to a spiritual truth that God wants to make you guys whole. You're here at the temple at the hour of prayer, and God wants to bless you. But he doesn't want you just to do it out of a form and a function. He wants to be personally involved with you. And so we see that in that case. But that is the outworking of the gift of the Spirit. Peter and John will later on explain that it wasn't them thinking, hey, I can heal this guy. The Lord just gave them the ability and the want to walk over there and grab the guy's hand and lift him up. Now, we don't like these things. We like them. We want to see somebody healed. But we're skeptical. And the reason is, is because it's something we can't explain with our own words. A miracle by definition is not something that can be explained by our natural laws. We like things like the, we like gravity. It can be explained. But we can't explain gravity because though we can't see it, we've got an equation for it, we put it in physics, and then we're like, well, gravity's just a constant. We like to be able to explain things. But in the Christian life, there are some things that the Word of God explains, but they still don't quite add up. But when God desires to break through our understanding and do something miraculous, it's so that Jesus would be glorified every time. And so those are just a few of them. There are other ones, uh, the working of miracles, prophecy, discerning of spirits. That's the ability to tell between the Spirit of God and other spirits that are against Him the different kinds of tongues. Um, Now, the gift of tongues is a big controversial one. If you've ever been to a Assembly of God church, there are certain churches, not all Assembly of God churches teach this, but many do that if you don't have the gift of tongues, then you're not saved. And I would argue because Paul writes here later that that's not the case. Not all people have all gifts. All people have a gift or some gifts, but not all people have all gifts. And what happens is when you tell people that if they don't have the gift of tongues, they're not saved, then people start faking it. They start doing a counterfeit. They, they just want to do a show. They want to prove that they're saved because they know they know the Lord. And so we don't need to be caught in that snare. If God gives us that gift, number one, the gift of tongues is not necessarily even meant for the, the gathering of the group together. Because if the gift of tongues is shared and all gifts are for the benefit of the church, there should be a translation. He says there, there's the gift of interpretation of tongues. But if someone's not there to interpret, then the gift should not be exercised because those gifts are for the benefit of all. And what you'll learn about the gift of tongues is that it's actually a gift that's meant to benefit the one who has it. It's one that goes beyond reason. 
because the person speaking in tongues does not know what they're saying, but the Lord does. And I haven't done a, a tremendous amount of studying on that particular gift, so I don't quite understand all of its implications, but the Lord has given it as a gift. He says different kinds of tongues. So, but here's the main point that Paul's making in this passage. In verse 11, he says, but one and the same spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. So God chooses. We don't get to pick what gift we have or don't have. He chooses, he gives it. So here's the application. Verse 12. For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, he says there that we're all baptized into one body. Now, we are the body of Christ. We are the church, big C. Not church building, not location. We are the church. And because we are the church, we're all members of the body of Christ. And he's going to use a physical body as a symbol or as a way to explain this. And he's going to say that we're all baptized into this one body. He's not talking about water baptism. He's talking about the baptism of the Spirit. And the baptism of the Spirit is when God comes into us and He indwells us. And as a result of that, we are all baptized into the spiritual family of God. So He says there, because of that, we've been made to drink into one Spirit. Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, None of that matters anymore. Those are still our worldly titles. But in the body of Christ, we're all equal. We're all baptized into the body as members. And then he goes on to give an explanation. For in fact, the body is not one member, but many. And look at your own bodies. How many members do you have in your physical body? You've got your fingers, you've got your toes, you've got your um, torso, you've got your head, you got your eyeballs, and we can go on forever and ever. But there are also members that we might not think about, less desirable, less presentable members. But they're vital, like your heart and your lungs. Without your heart and your lungs, none of the other members can do anything. My arms and my legs will not move if my heart and lungs won't pump blood and oxygen to them. And they also won't move if the control center doesn't work, the brain. And we see that many times there are people who have completely capable bodies, but because there's a disconnect in their spine or in their neck somewhere between the control center and the body, it doesn't work right. And so Paul says all of these members are necessary, but they were having disagreements. They thought that some of the members were not as necessary and they started measuring each other. So he says in verse 15, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I'm not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? Oh, well, I'm not, I don't belong to that group. I'm just a hand. No, it's all connected. They all need each other. My face needs my hand. My face is something that everyone sees. Many people think that that's more important than their hand. But if you don't have a hand, you can't take care of the face. And so that's what he's saying. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I'm not of the body. Is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? If we were all, if we all had the same gifts, just eyes, we wouldn't be able to hear. That's not of any benefit. 
If the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where would be the smelling? But now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body just as he pleased. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? But now, verse 20, Indeed, there are many members, yet one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. No, much rather, those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, on these we bestow greater honor. Think about it. We, th- we don't really think about our internal organs as much, but in a way we, we show greater honor to those because we cover them with skin that protects them. These vital organs that we have in our body, they're vital. We need them to live. But they're the weakest organs that they're, they're the weakest parts of our body that we have. They were exposed to the elements that our skin is. They would, they would perish. They would shrivel up. There would be problems. So we've got things like muscle mass and a rib cage that covers it. It protects it. And so we think about things that are less mentionable, maybe less desirable. Maybe the gift that God has given you is the gift of prayer. And you think, well, I can't use that. That's not really that important. Let me tell you that prayer is a vital organ in the church of God. If we don't pray for one another, if we don't use that gift to pray for one another practically, and if we don't use it to pray for one another outside of church, just in our prayer closet, guess what happens? People stop thinking of each other, and they start thinking of only themselves. Now, there is something that can be found in the human body. It lives for itself at the expense of all the other members of the body. It takes resources from other parts of the body, and it thinks nothing about the other parts. doesn't even care if they die. You know what it's called? called cancer cancer is something that comes into our bodies starts growing on certain members starts feeding taking their nutrients away it doesn't provide anything to the body it only takes it's cancer and what does cancer do it kills the body ultimately even if it's cancer of the finger cancer of the mouth cancer of the you know the organs if that cancer continues to grow and is not cut away It kills the body. And in the same way, if we take our spiritual gifts that God's given us, we only use them for ourselves. We don't supply anything to the body. You know what we ultimately do? We kill the body. One part hurts, they all hurt. It affects everyone the way that you use your spiritual gift. It can tear them down when the purpose is to build each other up. And so that's what he's telling the Corinthian church. So he says in verse 25, there should be no schism, no break in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with them. Now you are the body of Christ, your members individually, and God has appointed these in the church. First apostles, second prophets, Third, teachers. After that, the activities we talked about, miracles, gifts of healings, gifts of helps, administration, and a variety of tongues. So he lists out these gifts. One of the gifts that I think we don't see as an important gift is the gift of helps. 
Someone who has the gift of helps is always looking for what needs to be done around the church. And even if they don't feel like that's their gift or that's their strong suit, they're looking for a way to fill a void that's there. The gift of helps to me is probably one of the most important ones because that person has a servant heart, as you've heard. They're just looking for a way to get involved, to help out, to fill a role. But he says here in verse 29, and then we'll close. He asked the question, are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all have the gift of healings? Do all speak with tongues? Do all of them interpret? He says, that's not the point. Everyone's not going to have every gift. But verse 31 says this, earnestly desire the best gifts. Now, let me ask you, after you've read this chapter today, what's the best gift? Is there a best gift? What he's saying is, earnestly desire the best gift. God gives us the best. If he wants us to have a specific gift, he's going to give it to us. Desire the gift that God's given to you. Do all that you can to prepare yourself to use it properly, and then let it rip. Let it rip. God's given you the gift of prayer. Pray for people till you can't stand it anymore. God's given you the gift of help. Help. Look for ways to help. Be involved. God's given you the gift of discernment or teaching. Then use them. Because when you use those gifts, other people will be built up. Now notice, if they're not built up, if they're discouraged, then you don't have that gift. It's not you. It's okay. Back away. and Say, Lord, what have you gifted me to do? I'm trying to do something you didn't give me to do. You know? And take it in a practical way. If I feel like God's given me the gift of plumbing, that's not a spiritual gift. But if God's given me the gift of being able to do plumbing, and I go in there and it never works, I don't have that gift. And in the same way, if I believe I've got the gift of encouraging people and I try to do it and they walk away discouraged every time, that's not my deal. I need to back away and let my wife do it because she's got the gift of encouragement. You know, it's okay. He says, desire the best gifts. Desire what God has for you. It will always be the best. And then he kind of leads into the next chapter. He says, and yet I show you a more excellent way. Now I'm going to leave that as a cliffhanger. But you guys know 1 Corinthians 13, I hope. It's on people's bathroom walls. I had it as a kid, and we didn't have a Christian family. But it's what people read at weddings. And he's going to describe love, what love is. He's going to say, if you have all of the spiritual gifts, having spiritual gifts does not imply that the person that has them is mature, by the way. God gives gifts to people that are not mature. Look at the life of Samson. Samson had the gift of strength. That didn't mean he was spiritually mature. He was disobedient his whole life. God filled him with his spirit, and he kept jacking it up. God used him anyway. But what I will say is that if you have spiritual gifts, it does not imply you're mature. But if you have all those spiritual gifts, and you use them to the nth degree, but you don't have love for the people you're trying to serve, then they won't amount to anything. It'll be a resounding gong. Truth without love is brutal, you know. Love without truth is hypocrisy. If you love someone, but you don't really share any truth with them, you're being hypocritical. You don't correct them. But love without, or truth without love is brutal. And if we use the gifts of God to do the work of God, but we don't have the love of God filling us, no one's going to see the Lord. 
They're only going to see selfishness, self-seeking, evil. And so we need to pray that God would fill us with the gifts of the Spirit, that he would show us what the gift is that he's given us to minister to the body of Christ. Each one of us has been given one. And then we need to say, Lord, help me to use this gift with the love that you have for these people. And as you do that, you won't be glorified. God will. And as a result, people will see that you're a child of God. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for Paul and his desire to teach on uh, things that I have to confess I've been quite ignorant of most of my Christian walk. But it's challenged me, Lord, to seek you and to say, Lord, what, what do you want me to do with the gifts you've given me? How do you want me to serve your people? How do you want me to seek the benefit of others and put myself away? John the Baptist, he said it most eloquently, he said, I must decrease, and Lord, you must increase. And if that's going to take place, that means that you're going to reveal yourself through my life as I lay my life down and seek the benefit of others rather than my own. And so, Lord, help us as we seek to know what you've equipped us to do. Help us to see what your purpose is for your plan in our lives and how you want to affect the body of Christ through us. Lord, you've equipped us. You've called us. You've saved us. You're transforming us by the renewing of our minds. Lord, help that overflow from our lives in order to equip and encourage and bless others so that they would see the works of God in us and through us and that they would benefit because of our walk with you. Lord, Thank you for blessing us. Thank you for showing us this by example through the love of Jesus. Thank you for his willingness to be used. Thank you for his willingness to to let it all be poured out, even to death, so that we could have life. Lord, help us to be those who would pour life into the lives of those around us. We pray for many to be saved in this valley. We pray that they would experience the abundant life that you've promised. And Lord, help us just to be faithful. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's close with 